Hi, and welcome to the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. This week, September 19th through 26th, is Bisexual Awareness Week, and September 23rd is Bi Visibility Day. So on today's episode, we are going to be talking about the nearly 5 million adults in the U.S. who identify as bisexual. In case you were wondering, bi people actually comprise more than half of the entire LGBT community. Yet bi people are often erased from the LGBT movement, our political discourse, and even litigation. So today, we are going to be talking with the expert in this area, Nancy Marcus. Nancy is an out-bi lawyer and LGBT rights activist. She is co-founder of Bylaw, the national organization for bi lawyers, law professors, law students, and their allies, and is author of Bridging Bisexual Erasure in LGBT Rights Discourse and Litigation. Nancy is a former colleague of mine at Lambda Legal, and she is also a dear friend. Let's dig in. Hi, Nancy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Eric. I'm absolutely delighted to be talking to you tonight. Thank you. Well, it's so nice to be able to catch up with you and to hear your voice again. And for Bisexual Awareness Week and Bi-Visibility Day, I could think of nobody better to talk to about bi-visibility, particularly within the legal community, than Nancy Marcus. So thanks for joining me. It's like a little reunion, isn't it? <laughs> and what a, what a great occasion to have a reunion. I'm, I'm really thrilled you're doing this, so thanks for having me talking about yeah. the issue. Let's start out by talking about your background as an LGBT rights activist, and then your work as co-founder of Bylaw, and now your work as author of Legally Bi. Okay, great. Um, yeah, happy to. So I guess my story starts when I came out as I... Um, over a quarter century ago, which is so hard to believe I'm that old, <laughs> but I was mm-hmm. I was 20, I was in college, and I've been out as an LGBT rights activist about as long as I've been out as bisexual. And when I was in law school, um, Romer versus Evans came out, you know, the first Supreme Court decision affirming LGBT rights, and I was absolutely floored by it, both intellectually and as somebody who had a stake in this issue. And... Um, at that point, I, I got put in touch with one of the top LGBT litigators in the country. I'm not going to say who it was, but I said, you know, I really want to be doing this for a living when I get out of law school. And he laughed and he said, yeah, you and everybody else, you got to pay your dues and put in your time. So <laughs> basically, I put in my time for the next two decades and I did a lot of volunteering with LGBT rights organizations. Um, but I also went back to get my second and third law degrees at one point. I wanted to be a law professor and I was. And my dissertation was actually on same-sex marriage about 10 years before it actually happened. Um, I kind of predicted and, and laid out the doctrinal building blocks for what the decision would ultimately do. And the really cool thing was Lambda Legal ended up um, citing my scholarship in the briefs to the courts, um, and it was pretty widely cited elsewhere, too. So that definitely helped me get the Lambda Legal job eventually cause, because, <laughs> you know, I had this relationship even back then. Um, wow. So, yeah, so so I always had this LGBT rights activism in between the time that I made that call and the time that I actually got hired by Lambda Legal, but there was always this kind of this void there. There was a frustrating wall I kept hitting, which was that, um, and really every bi person faces it. It's this experience of being invisible and erased as a bi person, even when I'm in the middle of the community and being active fighting for our rights. Um, and it happened on a personal level, 
Um, there was one occasion, for example, where I was living in Madison, Wisconsin, and I was told that as a bi woman, I wasn't um, allowed to be a part of this social group for butch and femme women to get together because um, I couldn't possibly understand the butch femme experience. <laughs> and what I did in response was, you know, I could have gotten really upset and depressed, but at the time I was on the board of directors for the local LGBT community center, and I said, you know what, I'm going to start my own group. And I did. I started a group called Women for Women, and I made very explicit that it was open to any woman um, who loved women, no matter what their gender identity, their political affiliation, um, their sexual orientation. And i got to tell you, the women in Madison were really grateful for that because um, Madison's a great town, but there's like, you know, this pressure to be a certain type of lesbian in Madison. And, um, and bisexuals weren't the only ones who were stifled by that. So, um, so that's one example. There was a, another couple of years later, I was serving on um, a local steering committee for HRC, and we were having a conversation about building diversity within the HRC membership. And, and I decided at that point to um, make sure people knew I was bisexual because a lot of people assume I was lesbian. And um, I got thoroughly chastised for coming out as bi by other members of the steering committee. And I, you know, had things said to me like, well, we all went through that phase and you just haven't met the right person yet. And, um, and so that was really frustrating because if that's happening in that context, um, you know, I almost gave up hope. But what really was the last straw for me, and this is kind of the long, <laughs> the end of this long-winded saga about how bylaw came to be. Um, it all kind of culminated when I was at Lavender Law, the LGBT Bar Association Conference every year. And it was the year that um, we had one marriage, and Robbie Kaplan, who is um, the lawyer who argued Windsor, she was the keynote speaker. And she got up there and she said, you know, we need to call marriage what it is. It's not same-sex marriage. It's gay marriage, because only gays get married. <laughs> and mm. I just, to me, that was actually kind of my breaking point, um, because, of course, bisexuals get married, too, to our same-sex partners. It's not only gays and lesbians who... Um, whose lives were affected by same-sex marriage. And so I was very frustrated, and a door opened right after that because when her speech was over, Darcy Chemnitz, who's the ED of um, the National LGBT Bar Association, kind of opened the floor to a dialogue among all the conference attendees about how can um, lavender law be more diverse in future years. So my hand shot up, and I said, can we please be more inclusive of buys? Because there wasn't any buy programming on the panels, and there we were being, again, excluded, you know, even within the keynote speaker's speech. And and um, so I kind of aired my frustrations, and as soon as that segment of the event was over, a bunch of people came out to me and said, me too, me too, this is exactly how I feel, and thank you for saying it. And on the spot, bylaw was born. So bylaw is the first ever national organization of bisexual lawyers, law professors, law students, and our allies. And, um, you know, it was created organically, kind of has a sense of frustration that we weren't being included, even by our own community, even by our own lawyers and leaders. Um, and, but Darcy was great. Um, she gave us a forum. She gave us our, our bylaw caucus um, that we have had every year since at Lavender Law. And we do have more programming now at Lavender Law. So um, kudos to Darcy for being receptive, you know, once we <laughs> once we aired our grievances and made it clear we weren't going away. Um, so that's how bylaw got started. And then um, the last piece of the story, I guess, is, you know, I came out to Los Angeles after Lambda Legal hired me. 
And L.A. has the best, biggest bi community I've ever been a part of. There's a wonderful social organization here called AMBI, um, and it has thousands of members. And AMBI is also loosely connected to bi.org, um, which has a website with lots of resources, and I have become a regular columnist for bi.org. So I have a column called Legally Bi, which is easy to Google and find, and I write about different issues facing the bi community, um, different legal issues facing the bi community every every couple of weeks, every two or three weeks, I have a new column coming out. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a lot of great work. Um, I'd like to start by talking about your uh, column for Legally Bi. Your inaugural column that you wrote, um, the opening line says, there are a lot of bi people out there and a lot of lawyers, but bi lawyers? Are there really so many of us? So let's answer that question. Are there so many of us? And why is Bi Visibility Day and Bi Awareness Week so important? Yeah, I mean, there's so many bi lawyers, there's so many bi everything. Um, there are so many bi people. And and I think it really surprises people when they hear the statistics, but um, out of the LGB, the lesbian, gay, and bisexual population, we're the majority. Bisexuals are 52% of the non-straight population. Um, and that includes within the legal profession and everywhere else. Um, you would just never really guess it, usually, because we're pretty invisible. Um, so that's one reason that Bi-Visibility Day is so important, is because, um, you know, there, there's a lot of us, but we're not being represented. We're not visible. Um, and, and that has a lot of really harmful repercussions as a result. Can you tell us about some of the disparities facing bisexual people and how to remedy them? Um, You've examined how bias, stigma, discrimination, and erasure kind of all come together to create negative outcomes for bisexual people. Yeah, there's an unfortunately um, pretty shocking number of disparities that bisexuals face. We suffer a higher rates of depression and suicide, higher rates of partner violence, smoking, alcohol abuse, poverty, and a variety of health issues. Um, but we also face a disparity in our lack of resources as compared to the rest of the LGBT community. So, for example, there was a study in 2012 that looked at who foundations were funding, and among the grants that were given out in 2010 to by over 300 foundations, Almost $100 million was sold out. Um, the exact number was um, $97,189,139, and not a penny of it went to buy communities. Um, so because we're not getting recognized, we're invisible, we're not funded, the disparities um, that really are life-threatening aren't being addressed. And um, so there's this really terrible and preventable spiral, which is the more that we're ignored, um, the more the bi community kind of limps along without any resources and support, and then the less understood we are and the less visible we are. And then kind of the reverse of that is true, too. The, the less visible we are, um, the harder it is, and the, the less resources and support we have, the harder it is to come out. Um, and so it just kind of it's a self-perpetuating pattern that really needs to stop. Um, and uh, by Visibility Day, it really should be 365 days a year um, because we have a lot of work to do. Um, to address, you know, the, the serious harms that are aggravated by our invisibility. 
Can you talk about the lack of visibility and stigma within the LGBT community and also the uh, lack of visibility within the political discourse more broadly? Yeah. um, And I guess I'd like to talk about that in a couple of contexts. Um, In general, you'll see the, the phrase lesbian and gay. Um, all over the place. And in more recent years, we're starting to see gay and transgender as this, you know, that's fully inclusive. But neither phrase is inclusive because bias keep getting um, left out. And it's intentional. It's not an accident that it's happening. Um, there um, is a certain LGBT group, maybe a couple of them, that do a lot of um, polling, focus group testing, that kind of thing. And they really put the pressure on all the LGBT rights groups across the country, state and national, to exclude bisexuals. Um, and I've seen this over and over again when I've been volunteering against anti-LGBT initiatives at the state level. The scripts, the phone scripts, always say, you know, this harms lesbians and gays, and only lesbians and gays are harmed by this, or only gays and transgender people are harmed by this. And here I am volunteering as a bisexual, reading off the script, and I always have to stop and say, well, wait a minute, I, I'm bisexual and I'm being harmed too. I'm, I'm going to insert that into the script and I'm told not to. And so I've, I've implored the groups, the state groups, to be inclusive in the script, to not leave out bisexuals. And I've been told time and time again, well, this is what we're told by the national groups. This is what we're told works, that the effective uh, messaging, our fo- focus groups tell us, is to leave out the bisexuals. Um, and well, so when I'm told that it polls better to exclude us, well, yeah, it's going to poll better because if the LGBT rights movement itself is erasing bi people and sending the message that we don't matter as much or even exist, of course we're going <laughs> to continue to be less palatable to the middle, you know, mushy middle America. Um, but you know, as a matter of honesty, integrity, and the morality of just doing the right thing, LGBT rights groups should be leading. They have an obligation to lead on this issue and not just, um, you know, perpetuate the harmful erasure of by people. So that's a frustrating battle I've been, you know, fighting for decades and to no avail. Um, that, that kind of erasure is still going on in our political messaging. So what are some of the ways that bisexual people and particularly their allies can help to remedy this problem of invisibility, erasure, bias, stigma, and discrimination? You know, it really isn't rocket science. Just say our name. Really just just say bisexual. <laughs> We're not asking a lot. And, you know, I mean, I think that it took some work to start saying transgender out loud, too, but we did it. You know, the movement came around and and had that dialogue, even though it didn't feel easy at first. Um, it's long overdue for the movement to, without even hesitating, without, you know, being defensive about it or arguing about it, just say bisexual, just say it out loud. Okay, well, I'm really excited to talk to you about this next aspect of your work, which is the writing that you've done about bi-invisibility and erasure from LGBT rights litigation. And what's fascinating is a lot of the arguments that you put forward long ago are now some of the ones that are taking hold in the federal circuit courts uh, as it relates to uh, sexual orientation discrimination. So can you talk a little bit about your work in this area? Yes, I'd love to. Thank you. Um, so right around the time I was getting frustrated enough to start a national organization bylaw, <laughs> I also sat down and, and wrote a law review article on the issue called Bridging Bisexual Erasure in LGBT Rights Discourse and Litigation. It was published by Michigan Journal of Gender and Law a few years back. And 
in that article, I talk about the harms of bisexual erasure, um, why it matters, and and I had a number of um, anecdotal illustrations, and a couple of them um, I, I think are particularly um, disturbing and and um, you know really make it clear what the problem is in the context of the same-sex marriage litigation. Robin Oaks is one of the most prominent bi activists out there. Um, and, in fact, people tend to use the, what they call the Robin Oaks definition of bisexuality, which is bisexuality is the ability to um, be attracted to people of one's own gender or other genders, not necessarily in the same way or at the same time. That's the Oaks definition. So here she is, one of the most prominent bi activists in the country. Um, she got married to her wife in 2004 in Massachusetts. They're one of the, you know, first... Um, um, historic landmark marriages that took place, and it got widely reported by newspapers as a lesbian wedding between lesbians. So um, the fact that even Robin Oaks would be erased like that and, and identified as a lesbian um, is troubling. But even more troubling was what happened during the actual Prop 8 litigation in California in the Perry case that worked its way up to the Supreme Court. Um, Chris Perry... Um, was one of the women who was part of a couple challenging Prop 8 in that case. And her wife, Sandy Steyer, had previously been married to a man. So there they are at trial in the Prop 8 case, and Ted Olson, their own lawyer, decides that he really needs to cross-examine Sandy Steyer about the fact she'd been married to a man because to him this is this huge problem that needed to be addressed. Mm-hmm. So exact quote from his questioning of her um, how convinced are you that you're gay? You've lived with a husband. You said you loved him. Some people might say, well, it's this, and then it's that, and it could be this again. Answer that. <laughs> wow. So she was put on the spot and basically put in a position where she disavowed ever having been in love with her previous spouse. Um, and I don't know if Sandy, if Sandy Steyer identifies or ever identified as bisexual and that's not really important. She can identify however she wants. We all definitely have a personal decision. But the point is, he's treating her as if she only deserves to have the equal right to marriage if she's a gold star lesbian. I mean, the implication in his line of questioning is that if she were a bisexual, that would be a problem with the case. And heaven forbid bisexuals be treated with the same respect and given the same equal dignity and equal liberty rights as everybody else. So... um those are a couple of examples of how bi-erasure has played out in the same-sex marriage litigation context. Um, what I did in my article was I took a step back and I, I looked through briefs and court opinions, not just in the same-sex marriage cases, but in all the LGBT rights litigation um, at the Supreme Court level. And I looked to see how the lawyers in the courts were talking about bisexuals, if we were erased in the court opinions and the briefs as well. And indeed we were, but not always. Um, before Romer versus Evans, bisexuals actually were named in some of the briefs and some of the court opinions. Um, we were there alongside lesbians and gays. Romer versus Evans changed that. Romer versus Evans, of course, is a huge victory doctrinally. Um, and it's a decision that, you know, we've all celebrated as we should. But it also was tragic <laughs> for being a landmark decision that established by erasure by the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court was following the lead of LGBT rights lawyers. So here's what happened. Um, Colorado Amendment 2 explicitly named lesbians, gays, and bisexuals 
in stating that lesbians and gays and bisexuals um, did not have the right to access um, protections under in, under Colorado law. So bisexuals were explicitly named in the text of the Colorado Amendment, but um, when it came time to brief the case to the court, our own lawyers said the class of people affected by this amendment are only lesbians and gays. And um, the Supreme Court echoed that in the opinion and said, okay, the text of this you know, Colorado Amendment 2 names lesbians, gays, and bisexuals, but from this point forward, we are going to identify the class of people protected as only lesbians and gays because, in fact, only lesbians and gays are harmed by this. So the bi erasure was blatant. It was deliberate. And it was the LGBT rights lawyers queuing to the Supreme Court that it was okay to leave out bisexuals. And from that point forward, the court always has left us out. Um, and so when I started bylaw, one of the things that we did was we wrote an amicus brief to the court in Obergefell saying, please don't leave us out. <laughs> please stop erasing us from the discourse because we're affected too. We get married too. Um, and uh, the court unfortunately didn't, you know, they, again, we were left out of, of that opinion as well. But a federal court did sit up and take notice and cited our brief and a later analysis of LGBT rights issues. More and more LGBT rights lawyers are starting to be more inclusive. Um, so I, I think it is getting better. But it's hard to reverse that damage when we're the ones that actually signal to the Supreme Court in the first place it's okay to erase bias. So can you tell us a little bit about how bisexual people help to illustrate that sexual orientation discrimination is a form of sex discrimination? Yeah. Um, and, and to back up a little bit, I mean, there's, and I, I meant to address this earlier, but there's a number of ways that bisexuals are harmed by, by erasure. A um, couple of legal contexts, bis are really harmed in um, asylum cases when asylum adjudicators don't understand bisexuality as a valid sexual orientation, and then they send it back to countries, um, they send asylees back to countries where they could be persecuted. Um, in custody cases, bisexuals are sometimes viewed as too unstable and they lose their kids. So there's a number of harms that I outlined in my articles that bias do suffer because of bi erasure. But the LGBT movement as a whole is harmed too. And one of the examples of how we're all harmed by erasing bias is missed opportunities, missed strategic opportunities. And and one of them is this issue of establishing across the country that sexual orientation discrimination is in fact a form of sex discrimination. So the way that works is um, under Title VII, which is, of course, the federal statute that prohibits discrimination in the workplace, um, sexual orientation, I mean, how do you divorce sex from sexual orientation? Of course, logically, if you really think about it, um, sexual orientation discrimination is a form of sex discrimination, and the EEOC recognizes that. But the courts are just starting to explicitly spell that out. Um, and a couple of federal circuit courts have had some really strong opinions saying, of course, sexual orientation is a form of sex discrimination that therefore is prohibited under Title VII. Um, but one of the ways that that point is made, that it really becomes clear that sexual orientation discrimination is a form of sex discrimination, is through this kind of associational argument that the discrimination wouldn't have happened but for the sex of your partner. Nobody can illustrate that as clearly as a bisexual person, and here's why. If I, as a bi woman, 
um, were in a job and um, I had a girlfriend and my boss were homophobic and and fired me because of my girlfriend. Um, but then if I at the same job, same boss, I had a boyfriend um, boss has no problem. I keep my job. The only thing that's changed is the sex of the person I'm dating. My sexual orientation has not changed. I've been bisexual all along. Mm-hmm. And that's really important because in these cases where the courts are looking at this issue, um, the Trump administration is arguing, well, you can't really, it's apples and oranges because you don't have this constant there. You can't compare a gay man, you know, who would be dating, you know, a man to a straight person because there's been, we are the constant, the bisexuals are the constant because we illustrate that the one factor that hasn't changed, um, the only thing that has changed is the sex of the partner, not the sexual orientation. So we clearly illustrate that it is, in fact, a form of sex discrimination. So by leading bisexuals out of that discourse, out of the litigation, I think that we're missing the opportunity to actually strengthen our arguments on the sex discrimination front. And same thing with marriage. Um, the, the argument could have gone, and I think it would have been stronger. You know, we ended up getting where we needed to go. But same kind of thing with marriage. Back when marriage wasn't legal and I was living in Indiana, if I had gone to, like, the clerk of courts um, and said, hi, I'm bisexual, I want to marry this woman, is that okay? The clerk would have said, well, no, of course it's not okay. You're trying to marry a woman, and that's not legal here. And if I had gone to the same clerk and said, hi, I'm bisexual, I want to marry this man, is that okay? The clerk would have said, well, yes, of course that's okay because um, different sex marriage is legal. So, again, that would have illustrated the only differential, the only thing that's changed is the sex of the person I want to marry, not my sexual orientation. So in the context of marriage, too, we could have helped establish that's actually a form of gender discrimination and such that could have gotten heightened scrutiny under the constitutional standards that recognizes that gender discrimination is more suspect. So by including buys, I think that litigators could actually strengthen their arguments, and um, hopefully more and more of them will start thinking along those lines, and the courts will start realizing um, that we, uh, we help make that very clear. Does bylaw bring affirmative litigation? No, we don't. We're a very informal collective of lawyers um, that, um, you know, we have a listserv. So, you know, if there's a call out for help, you know, kind of send the call out and then people can like individually respond. But we're not really um, structurally organized that way to, to bring litigation, unfortunately. Okay. Well, if there are any program officers that are out there listening, any foundations, now would be a time to... Uh, pony up and fund some bisexual organizations because the arguments that you just advance are very persuasive and they're actually working and winning in the courts. But I guess my next question is, and I didn't even know about this until I read your column, but we have our first bisexual judge. Can you tell us about that and why it's important? Well, and we have a, I mean, this is really, really new. Up until last year, we had it not a single out by judge on the bench anywhere in the country, um, federal or state. So um, Mike Jacobs, kudos to him. He's a magistrate in Georgia, came out as by this year. Um, and actually, right before that, um, a transgender woman, a female judge, Victoria Kolakowski in California, um, came out as pansexual. So we actually had um, a judge come out as bi on one side of the country and a judge come out as pan on, on the other coast. Um, all within, I think, about a month of each other this past year. So 
It's it's not just a matter of bean counting. I mean, it's it's wonderful to have, you know, just their presence, just to have them there. But it's the significance of it, um, in part, is the fact that there's a real lack of biliteracy on the bench. And I had mentioned before, that can, ta- that can have life and death consequences for bi people seeking justice in the courts. Um, bi people lose their kids in custody, visitation, um, foster care scenarios when judges don't understand bisexuality and think that people who are bi are, must be unstable because they go from a different sex relationship to a same-sex relationship, and they view that suspiciously, and they punish the kids and the parents. Um, in the in the context of asylum, it's even more life-threatening because if somebody um, is not deemed as, and, and you actually hear this phrase, well, it's not you're not gay enough. You need to pretend to get gay or you're not going to get asylum. Um you know, the, the life and death consequences of that is you have bisexual people who are, you know, being threatened to be sent back to their home companies where they can be persecuted or even killed for their sexual orientation. So having bi judges on the bench can only help <laughs> um, with bi-literacy on the bench as, as a whole. So um, I'm thrilled that we're finally seeing a couple of bi judges, but of course we need a lot more. Um, I mean, there's always talk on the bar about diversifying the bench in every other context. Um, so if the bar really seems to get this in other contexts, why not in the context of bi-representation too? Nancy, can you tell us a little bit about ways that bisexual lawyers and their allies, including lesbian lawyers, gay lawyers, trans lawyers, can all help to center bisexual people in litigation, in the community, in our discourse? How can we be better advocates? Well, the first thing is, and this is so cliche, but it's so true, come out, come out wherever you are. Um, we need that visibility. So if you are bisexual, um, I know it's hard to come out, um, you know, including to, to your gay colleagues um, who you, you know, fear might have a negative reaction. But it is so critical that we come out in greater numbers and we build that community um, and we become more visible so people can, can hear our stories and know who we are. Um and for those who aren't bi, please be an ally. Please listen to us. Uh, don't judge us. You know, question. There, I know there's a lot of stereotypes and misconceptions out there still. And um, and I would implore people to really take a step back and, and question that and, and, and listen to bi people and talk to them. Um, and don't be afraid to put bi people at the forefront of your impact litigation. <laughs> because, like I said, we can actually help strategically. And we're part of the community. We, we Our lives are affected, too. Um, and, and the more we're hidden from LGBT rights discourse, um, the more those harmful disparities we talked about are perpetuated. And, um, you know, we need, we need to be there for each other. And the LGBT community, I mean... Are beautiful decisions that Justice Kennedy wrote on behalf of the Supreme Court. Okay, some people think they're a little too fluffy to be beautiful, but I think that he really laid a, a nice, solid, and eloquent foundation for the affirmation of our rights. And a lot of that was about equal dignity and respect. And not treating LGBT people as second-class citizens. Well, if we really mean that, if we really value those principles, we need to do the same to our own. Gay people need to not treat bi people as second-class. Um, bi people need to be accorded the same equal respect and the same equal dignity that we all have fought so hard for for the LGBT community as a whole. Um, it's internally consistent with, with the principles that we've been fighting so hard for, and it's the right thing to do, and it's, it's really important. 
Nancy, are there any resources that you'd like to kind of give a shout out to? Yeah, I'd love to. And also, I'd love to echo your earlier shout out to any foundations listening. Please throw your money at these groups because we are starving for resources. And it's really hard for us to do the important work without having any funding. So some of these other groups, and these are all almost completely volunteer-led organizations. There's, I, I don't even know if at this point there's any full-time um, paid out by lawyers doing LGBT rights advocacy specifically for bi people. I don't think there's anybody out there because we don't have the funding. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so at one point I was the only one, and now unfortunately I'm I'm not doing LGBT rights work for a living anymore. So I think we might be back down to zero, which is really sad. Um, so some of the bi groups out there that um, are wonderful resources and could use both support, but could also would also love to hear from any bi people out there um, or people who just want information are BiNet. Um, BOP, the Bisexual Organizing Project, and BRC, which is the Bisexual Resource Center. All three of those are national organizations that have abundant resources. Um, some are more politically active than others, um, but they're all advocacy groups. Um, and BOP, the Bisexual Organizing Project, has an annual conference called Because, um, which takes place in Minneapolis once a year. Um, and that's one of the... I, I think it's the only really bi-advocacy uh, type conference um, that's, that's really great to go to. It's not just for lawyers, but it's for um, anybody who's an advocate. Um, so hashtag still bisexual is a great group for just people to share their stories of um, of being bisexual and what that means. Um, Andy mentioned also bi.org is a great resource. Lots of um, articles and, and materials on their website. And AMBI, A-M-B-I, is a really wonderful social organization that, like I said, we have thousands of members here in L.A., and if other cities start to duplicate that, um, it would really go a long way in helping build that community that's so lacking. So those are some of the, the bi organizations out there. I apologize if I missed anybody. I probably did. but Well, Nancy, I can't let you go before I ask you about, and I don't know if this is something that you made up or whether it's common lingo in the bi community, but I read it in your column. Can you please tell our listeners the term that you use to call uh, fierce bi advocates in the legal field? I can't. I've got to, I'll have to spell it, too, so that the listeners can visualize it. <laughs> I did come up with this. This was just an ESCism. <laughs> I call myself and all my other fellow bylaw people by lawyers, and it's spelled capital B I and then capital L A W R R R R R R I O R S lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> Nancy, you are amazing. I love that. Do you have any parting thoughts for our listeners? Uh, something you want to leave us with? Oh, I mean, say our name. Please just, I mean, so much of what has to happen is just to include, just to say the, the B word, um, which doesn't take resources. It doesn't take a lot of work. Um, and and that's, that's the biggest thing that everybody can do is to just make a point of being inclusive in their briefing, in their impact litigation. Um, when you say lesbian and gay, think about, the repercussions when you're leaving out bisexual people. You may not be doing it on purpose. You might be doing it out of habit, but try to break that habit and be more inclusive. Um, it's okay to say LGBT. Court. So saying, well, it's an, anachron- it's, it's an acronym that doesn't sound right. Just That's not a good enough excuse anymore because the courts are going there, so we can go there too. 
Um, same-sex couple is perfectly inclusive. I mean, there's a lot of phrases you can use that are inclusive. Just say only lesbians and gays are affected or only gays and transgender people are affected um, because you're leaving out the bias, and we've talked about the harms of that. Um, as a really, really out by person, I have so many people in the community come up to me and say, you know what, I think I'm probably bisexual too, but I just don't feel like I can identify that way. I, I just, I'm afraid of what people would think. So I'm, I just, I call myself gay because it's easier. Um, it's not shocking to me how many times that happens, but it would probably be shocking to a lot of people. You're surrounded by, by people and you don't even know it if you're in the LGBT community. Um, we really are everywhere. And when we're, you know, when the, when the stereotypes are repeated, when, when there's jokes made about buys, um, you could very well be hurting someone in earshot. Um, and, uh, so if people could just really make an effort to step back and, and think about that and be willing to grow and, and change and be open to buy people, uh, we really need to be working side by side. We already are, but <laughs> it needs to be more open. Well, thank you so much, Nancy. It has been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you, Eric. You are the best. Well, thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week with more on the Legal LGBT podcast. Happy Bi Visibility Day and Bisexual Awareness Week.